I think people are starting to realise that elite athletes they don't have this immunity towards poor mental health. You know, they get injured physically, of course they can get injured mentally as well, and, and that isn't that much different. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of 80% Mental. At time of recording, number 11 in the Apple podcast charts for sports podcasts in Malaysia. I'm Dr. Pete Olushaga, and this is a podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance, uh, number 84 in Denmark. You're probably familiar with the format by now. If you're not, episode 14 of series two is kind of a weird place to start listening, but it's nice to have you here anyway. Maybe go back and listen to some of the other episodes too. Anyway, uh, we normally start with a question about the psychology of sport performance and then try to answer that question with the help of some special guests. We've covered all sorts of things so far. In series one, we ask questions like, why do we get nervous and what can we do about it? What's the deal with mindfulness? How can we set better goals? And in series two, we've asked how psychology can help with injuries. How do we get team culture right? And we've had conversations on cultural awareness and racism in sport and loads more. So seriously, if you're starting with episode 14 of series two, again, thanks. But there's loads more for you to go back and listen to once you've finished with this episode, of course. But in this episode, I'm going to ask about mental health and well-being in sport. A win-at-all-costs culture has, in the past, made it almost impossible for athletes to show any sort of vulnerability, to concede that the pressure of elite sport takes a toll, to admit that they are not, in fact, superhuman. And it's a culture that we've all, and I use we in the broadest sense, a culture that we've all contributed to with the expectations that we often place on our athletes. But what we've seen, I'd argue anyway, fairly recently, is that athletes are beginning to change this narrative. Now, I couldn't really think of a specific question to frame the episode around. The whole question thing seemed like a good gimmick at first, but honestly, I've got enough things to do. So we're just going to open up this conversation around mental health and well-being in sport, which I think we can all agree is a really important conversation right now. And I've got two wonderful souls joining me today to have that conversation. So I'm delighted to introduce, first of all, Shakiba Mokadam. Did I pronounce that right, by the way, Shakiba? Yes, that was really great, actually. I, well I, I forgot to check before we, before we started, sorry. Um, Shakiba is a doctoral student focusing on the mental health literacy of women rugby players. She has a BSc in psychology and an MSc in sport and exercise psychology and also works as a cybercrime researcher, which I didn't know about. Uh, I'm definitely going to ask you about. Shakiba is the co-owner of Move Training Center, a private training facility in Southampton. But I'm going to go back to the cybercrime thing. Tell me about that. Yeah, I kind of landed a job in 2019, um, even though it has zero relevance to what I'm doing in terms of my PhD or even my qualifications. And yes, I've been there for two years now and we work with the National Cybersecurity and we're also involved in a project looking at online extremism and how online extremism groups 
recruit young people and basically we're coming up with like prevention strategies to try and battle that and it's been really interesting it's been a massive eye-opener in terms of what really goes on online and kind of that dark web side of the internet that I wasn't really aware of before this role so see it's been a enlightening experience for sure Mm, that sounds absolutely fascinating and it's, it's good to do different things right I just, yeah, I wanted to like just try and use my skills I've gained through just different research roles and apply it in a complete different setting. And I think for me, it was a, it was a good, it was a good personal challenge to kind of step out of my comfort zone and yeah, just grow in a complete different area of research. Okay. Well, I, I, I presume we'll probably get into some of the mental health literacy stuff a little bit later on in the podcast, but for now, thank you for, uh, for coming on and welcome to 80% Mental. Thank you for having me. Uh, my second guest today is Dr. Paul Gorczynski, uh, Senior Lecturer at the University of Portsmouth, BPS Chartered Psychologist and HCPC Registered Practitioner Psychologist. Paul was an expert member of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, Consensus Statement on Mental Health in Elite Athletes. And he's also the co-author of the BASES, which is the British Association for Sport and Exercise Science, Science, Sciences, Science. I think there's a, there's multiple sciences. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was the, the co-author of the um, the basically mental health in sport and exercise psychology units. So responsible for some of the training in, in, in mental health. Uh, Paul, thank you as well. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And, oh, thanks. Um, obviously, you've done a lot of work focusing on, on mental health. Is it is it fair to say that it's something that's gaining more attention maybe in the last few years? Uh, yes. And, and, uh, no, um, it depends on what you mean by gaining attention. Uh, like where is it actually being talked about? Are we perhaps referring just to like media presence? Um, so I, it's a, it's, I think it's actually a tough question. Uh, are we seeing more instances of, of individuals talking about their mental health or disclosing various mental health symptoms and disorders? Um, I think it actually is a very difficult question because um, we've we've this has been talked about previously. There's been discussions around depression. There's been discussions around anxiety. There's been discussions around very publicly around suicide as well. Um, but I think I'm hoping that we are maybe seeing a different kind of narrative uh, that's emerging around mental health and sport. So maybe if, if anything, the narrative may be changing. Well, again, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Welcome to Eighty Percent Mental, and um, hopefully, we'll get into some of those some of those topics and conversations as we as we progress through through today. Well, thanks. So, I think, as I say, I think you know, in fairness, over the last few years, certainly, but particularly during and since maybe the Tokyo Olympics, we've seen a number of athletes talking about their mental health in a way that. And, and whether this is due to the media attention or not, I think we've seen a number of athletes talking about mental health in a way that we might not have seen 10, even five years ago. You know, you, you started talking about this just now, Paul, but what do you think has changed, if anything? I mean, that's a good question. I, 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 and I scratch my head when I, when, um, when I hear that. Because um, I... I often think about the kind of narrative that is used to describe mental health amongst athletes, and it's often fixated on the individual. Um, and mental health, perhaps 
the disclosure of certain symptoms, maybe even the disclosure of um, a disorder, it's often rooted in a very uh, personal narrative, like one of failure, like I somehow did this or something is perhaps wrong or uh, it's very much rooted in uh, I am the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm hoping is that this narrative actually gets addressed and, and starts to change and more of a collective and more environmental awareness of all the kinds of causes and factors associated with mental health symptoms, aside from just individual level ones, start to get acknowledged. Um, and so I think we're starting to see a bit more of a, a complicated narrative emerge, um, whether this is uh, something that is really picked up by readers or viewers, uh, consumers of sport. I think that's to be debated. I think from a like a scholarly perspective, I don't think we have enough research that really tells us uh, as to the kind of like media analysis of, of mental health being reported in sport. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's actually I know it's a, I know it's like your lead off question. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and, man, he's making it complicated already, but it, it actually <laughs> is I, it's a really complicated uh, it's a really complicated question and and to give you a very simple answer, I think would be not doing it justice. Um, look but, uh, along with my friend and colleague uh, Cass Gibson out in Marjan, we've taken a look at some of this work uh, mental health representation in in sport and it, and there's not much. Um, and so is this kind of growing uh, maybe? Is the narrative shifting? I, I hope it is. Um, and I hope that it's uh, starting to kind of grow from just a, one of, of, of individual kind of personal accountability and blame and, and also one that takes into account various factors. And I think we'll kind of touch upon that, especially you mentioned to the Tokyo Olympics. So I think there's a lot to be said about uh, what's happening or what has happened with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting the point that you're making there about often athletes who disclose mental health issues and talk about mental health issues is associated with this particular narrative around their own performance or um, I I hesitate to use the word failure, but it's the word that comes into my head at the moment. Um, You know, I'm thinking of athletes like DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love in the NBA who who talk about their own personal struggles, Mm. uh, which then led them to talk about their, their, their sort of mental health. Uh, obviously, Naomi Osaka as well withdrew from the French Open, talking about her own personal struggles with, with anxiety, um, specifically around dealing with the the, the press. Um, Shakiba, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on on some of this as well. You know, do you think that the narrative has changed around mental health and sport? And if so, what do you think has has changed? Yeah, I think um, I, I do agree with what Paul's saying. I think it is a really complex kind of topic and really complex question I'm as easy as the sound but I think I think the narrative the narrative is slowly changing in in sport and that's for a number of reasons I think there are certain people that are kind of paving the way in sport in terms of speaking about it it is not it's not something that's unspoken of and I think that's really important to make that clear is that other people have come forward and have spoken about it but perhaps media coverage on it wasn't really um that great maybe perhaps it got withdrawn from media attention. And I just think at the moment, there's this power of social media. Um, I guess one of the, the good things about social media that is that it, it, it can reach such a wide population 
and we see athletes openly speaking about it. You know, Tyson Fury being like a prime example. He even wrote a book on it. And I think the fact that that, that those conversations are being had is, is is a massive movement that perhaps we didn't see 10 years ago. Um, but it, I do always make the, want to make the point that it, it isn't something that's, that is like, it's new. It's, it was being spoken about by certain individuals like Ricky Hatton, for example, mm-hmm. um, when his kind of career came to an end and he kind of had a battle with alcohol and drugs and a sudden kind of gaining of weight and he kind of got lost and then he came and, and openly spoke about it. But I just don't think the media coverage around it was, was that it wasn't really thriving at that kind of time. And mm-hmm. I think maybe the concept of mental health in general wasn't really spoken about much in media, whereas now it, it's a common conversation that is being had. So I would say yeah, the power of media, especially social media now, has helped move the conversation on, especially in sports, for sure. Well, so a, a, a rare benefit of, of social media. We talk about the ills of social media all the time, don't we? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one for social media at all, but I do, <laughs> I do understand like the the benefits of it for certain things being like, you know, that power of of changing narrative and changing perspective through social means. That that's yeah. That to me, that's that's that could be a, in some ways a, a very powerful movement. And and speaking of of social media, obviously over the summer we saw uh, Simone Biles. Uh, we talked about Simone Biles in our Olympic review episode. But, you know, her experience in the Tokyo Olympics was a, a very public and very much commented upon uh, in the media. Uh, example of an athlete experiencing some real difficulty in competition. And, you know, you, you mentioned a few examples there. You know, you mentioned Ricky Hatton. and we, you know, We'll talk about this a little bit later on. Um, but w- we normally see athletes talk about their mental health struggles after their careers are finished. Um, what we're starting to see now is them talking about it while they're still active. Um, like I say, Simone Biles talked about difficulties in an actual competition, and we, we don't really normally see that. So I just wonder, you know, what did you make of the public reaction, the press reaction to what was essentially an athlete really struggling, really kind of breaking down right in front of our eyes? Yeah, for sure. I think the the public response versus the... The press's response were two complete different responses, I would say. I think the public, because they could relate to this, they could almost relate to this person that perhaps before they weren't able to relate to them. You know, I think we're so used to seeing this glamorous side of the elite athlete life, you know, um, doing you know doing what you love and getting paid for it. And it's so glamorized. And I think now we're seeing during the process of actually being an elite athlete, now we're seeing this actual real, real side of it, the real effects of what what actual competitive pressure can do to people. Mm-hmm. And we were taking away this concept of, you know, for some reason athletes have this, elite athletes have this immunity and actually we're viewing them as people who are not immune to poor mental health. And I think that's where that reaction, that public reaction is coming is because, you know, people being able to relate to the emotions, I think, brings a sense of empathy that you just don't see from the press. And of course, I think, you know, the press have a completely different agenda. Mm. Um, and of course, there's still that, you know, stigma attached to it. And I do feel like the, the press really try to play on that. And of course, they'll clinch on, on anything that will sell. So for me, yeah, there was, there was a massive, there was a massive lack of empathy 
from the press, whereas people, yeah, I think people are starting to realise that elite athletes are, they don't have this immunity towards poor mental health, and of course they're going to, you know, they get injured physically, of course they can get injured mentally as well, and, and that mm. it, it, isn't, it isn't that much different. Yeah, and you know, g- given the, the prevalence of mental health issues in the general population, it would be kind of weird if athletes and coaches didn't experience mental health issues. Um, you know, the, the, there's evidence, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, either, either of you, but I think the evidence suggests that athletes experience broadly comparable rates of, of mental ill health relative to the general population. Again, sort of makes sense. Um, and I've read somewhere, I can't remember exactly where I picked this up from, but about 34, 35% of current athletes experience anxiety and depression. Um, other studies show that, that women athletes actually experience slightly higher levels of, of anxiety. Paul, what, what did you make of, of seeing Simone Biles in, uh, in Tokyo and, again, some of the, the fallout from that? Hmm. I, I think this is actually... A, I think you're going to hate me by the end of this. I think this is actually a really complicated question as well because are we, are we really just kind of putting brackets around what happened in Tokyo and perhaps maybe to be specific to your to your listeners, are we just referring to her withdrawing from both team and individual events? Or are we... Oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say, I, mean, I, th- I think what I mean by this is that, you know, obviously there's some history and there's some background. And what we saw, you know, unfolding in front of our eyes on television is an athlete experiencing mental difficulties. And we don't normally see that so much, or it's not normally so well publicized anyway. So well, yes, obviously it's a it's a really complex issue. But you know, what did you make of of the way that we responded to just seeing this unfold in front of our eyes? Uh, my friend Cindy Miller Aaron, uh, as well as other folks who are involved in the IOC consensus statement, uh, have put out some wonderful work on PTSD, mm-hmm. and um, I think what was going through my mind when I was seeing what was happening in Tokyo was an individual who was very and profoundly trying to deal with, I guess, deal profoundly with a very difficult situation, not only the Olympics that were happening at that particular moment, but I think also coming to terms with the various kinds of symptoms that are related to PTSD. Um, You know, in September, uh, Simone Biles testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee around what happened with Larry Nasser, mm-hmm. um, and this person is incredibly powerful um, to to be able to testify. I mean, that takes such incredible power. But I think what we were witnessing, and also what the media was perhaps commenting on, was someone who was displaying symptoms of PTSD. Um, and this individual uh, was was now dealing with this kind of experience in a very public light. Um, and it, I think, for me, exposed the kinds of devastating consequences that are often attributed to to kind of to, to, to what may happen if, if, if mental health symptoms aren't addressed in sport, both at an individual and I think at an institutional level. Look, the individual can experience things physically. So, you know, decreased performance, pulling out of competition, things like that. 
cognitively, uh, there might be a loss of interest, unwillingness to kind of, uh, you know, be invested in, in pursuing something. Um, they may, um, you know, behaviorally kind of change their ways with regards to a particular sport. Uh, there might be, you know, relational fragmentation. Um, there might be financial consequences that come from, from uh, experiencing mental health symptoms. Uh, you know, loss of sponsorship, loss of an ability to earn income, and ability to continue to earn an income. Mm-hmm. You know, various mental symptoms may be exacerbated, but there's also, um, you know, consequences for for organizations. Right? There's reputational damage. There's financial losses. There's also sort of legal ramifications. Simone Biles has exposed all of that. She pointed a finger at USA Gymnastics and, amongst many other organizations, and 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 really pointed out the complete and utter failure of this organization to safeguard young athletes. I think over 300 women were sexually assaulted by this individual. Yeah. And these are horrific occurrences. Um, and so what we're perhaps, you know, at the very beginning of our conversation talking about are just maybe some symptoms that, have a deep-seated history in a sport that has failed this individual immensely, as well as hundreds, if not thousands, of women. Mm. And so, again, you know, we're talking about the individual versus a system. And and Simone Biles is carrying the weight by by being so brave in exposing those kinds of symptoms and just, you know, saying enough is enough. Um, but yet we're not thinking more broadly around what's happening with USA Gymnastics or with other sporting organizations. Um, you know, you talked about Naomi Osaka earlier and the kinds of challenges that she experienced by withdrawing from the French Open and the kind of consequences for not doing media. And I think she was threatened with fines. Again, you know, what what... What is Roland Garros doing for uh, for Naomi Osaka or even women's tennis or tennis in general? Um, you know, these are individuals who are um, experiencing all sorts of challenges in the workplace. Um, and I think that if we change the kind of narrative, uh, not just athletes, but these are folks who are doing a job, who've experienced harassment and abuse, and they're being let down completely. And I think that this is not the narrative that is being communicated in the media. Uh, we, we kind of pile on to, um, you know, Simone Biles being somehow not strong enough to continue on in competition, but we are not willing to have a much broader understanding and a much more nuanced narrative about what may have contributed to this individual's mental health. Okay, we're here with, oh, we're not, I'm, I'm by myself. Um, I'm here with Shakiba Mokadam and Dr. Paul Goczynski, and we're talking about mental health and well-being in sport. Um, we've, we've, mentioned, we've mentioned mental toughness several times on this, on this podcast. Um, I have issues with mental toughness. 
But, you know, competitive sport is all about this idea of perseverance and grit and resilience and, and pushing through. And we've kind of adopted that in, in society as well, right? That we, we celebrate overwork. Um, what, what do you think that's happening on a more broad level, on a more societal level, um, that is making people in general more open to talking about these mental health issues? Um, Shakiba, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I think I think what's really coming to light is that that kind of work pattern of really driving yourself into the ground is that it's not it's not sustainable and I think that's what people are beginning to realize is that this, you know, go hard or go home, those kind of that narrative like very war-like terminologies that are being used and in the long term people are realising that it's not only detrimental to their health, to their mental health, but actually their social life might take a knock, their family life might take a knock. Um, Work-life balance, you know, it almost just doesn't exist. And essentially, people are doing it for financial income. I What I like to think, at least, is that society is becoming more aware that happiness doesn't equate how much is in your bank account necessarily. Of course, you know, it'd be naive of me to sit here and, and say you know, money isn't important because of course it is important, but I think it's that having that right balance of knowing to enjoy life and what true happiness actually is and that you don't need tons of money for it or at least excessive amounts of it. Um and I and I think that conversation of mental health really does come into it because when that balance is interrupted and it's not it's no longer present people's mental health take a hit, they start experiencing poor mental health, they start to experience symptoms of poor mental health. And I think people are actually understanding what poor mental health looks like. For example, just not being able to sleep properly, that is a symptom of poor mental health. And yet people people weren't aware of it, that you know sleep plays a major part in your mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way we look after our body, how we move our body, how we eat and what we put in it, all of these, you know, contributes to your mental health and that that just you know pushing yourself constantly into the point of breaking is just not sustainable not only for your body but also for your mental health as well and and, and your phd is around mental health literacy isn't it so can, can you just explain what you mean by mental health literacy and just a little bit about i guess what you found out through some of your your phd work yeah, of course. So mental health literacy is basically looking at our own knowledge and belief around mental health and mental health symptoms and disorders and basically how what is our understanding of it? What do we, how do we see symptoms of it? Are we able to recognise those symptoms, not only in ourselves but also in others too? And then it's also looking at attitudes towards help-seeking and do we know who to go to and how to even gain that kind of support Um who are our go-to kind of first port of call? Is it family or friends or is it actually a mental health professional? And so it's essentially it is looking at knowledge, but also attitudes and intentions towards seeking help. I think I kind of went into the PhD with this expectation of there's going to be so much research out there on this, you know, and it really opened my eyes. It really opened my eyes in terms of realising that there is literally nothing out there on it. Like we did a... Um, We've done a systematic review and meta-analysis and there's literally eight studies of which one of them has 46 um, women rugby players in comparison to like 158 male rugby players. Mm -hmm. 
and that's what that's what we're dealing with um and it really opened my eyes and so how are we supposed to understand the mental health literacy of this population when we don't even know the facts of oh actually we do now because we've published a paper on it this year so <laughs> just to, just to push that out there um we do have some sense of it and yeah i think what, what I've, I've learned is that well firstly there's, there's a massive scarcity in terms of research academic research but also there's a massive lack of funding for women rugby players especially when it comes to um mental health research or just mental health resources that mental health resources are non-existent at the moment unless you are at that elite level but anything that falls under not elite um access to mental health is is again non-existent you have to go through the nhs well of course you know having spoken to players and through interviewing them for some one of the studies for my phd people always you know talk about the lack of time i don't have time you know it's just, they have to fit in training and then work and social life and of course um when we compare this to males, some of them who play at the same level, they get paid. So, of course, they don't have to have this juggling act of, you know, working full-time and then training, but also not having access to the right support systems. Um, in terms of the mental health literacy and what we've done so far, is actually is relatively high, which is good to see. But again, this is kind of taken with a pinch of salt. We've done it with about 208 rugby players. So I don't want to generalise that to every woman rugby player. But in comparison to, for example, what's been done with medical students or with university students, the women rugby players were at the top in terms of their actual knowledge base and mental health literacy. But that then didn't actually mirror in terms of their intentions to seek help, which was interesting because they know perhaps how some symptoms look and they know to recognise them and they know who to go to, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have the, the intentions to go, to go out and want to seek seek the help and much of it does come down to well a lot of things a lack of resources but also this is stigma that's attached and i think with the the, the, the evidence that's provided through the phd and the studies we've done no i think women they they have a very unique kind of experience especially in rugby it's a male-dominated sport mm-hmm. um there is a lack of societal support for women in rugby because of course deemed a masculine sport and women shouldn't be in it and of course that narrative still exists even to this day and we see it in rugby we see it in boxing we see it in in, in mma and it, it's kind of battling that added pressure that you know the male counterparts don't don't have to even necessarily you know think about because they're accepted in that sport very naturally and that that added pressure is, is 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 not only unique but also it's it's another detriment um to their mental health you know when i spoke to them the players spoke about how exhausting and especially over time you know the sport they're dedicated so much of their time to to constantly get told they're not accepted in there to constantly get told you know you know they shouldn't be in it because you know it's not a place for a woman mm. and that was interesting to hear but also it it's it just proves the point as well that the, the, the not only attention is needed in this area, but also there needs to be funding to support these players. And, you know, we speak about why don't we see more women in, in sports such as football or such as rugby, but when the funding isn't in place, we can't expect women to work full-time, to live what could essentially be a happy life, to train full-time, 
you know, we're, we're expecting the impossible from women athletes, mm. and we don't have we don't hold those expectations for male athletes, and yet we 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 wonder why women's sport doesn't get the same attention as men's and because of our the society's unrealistic unrealistic expectations and i could literally talk about this forever so i'll I'll stop there (laughs) no it's fascinating stuff though you know again it's kind of the the uh the broader environment that all of these different factors are involved um that might you know impact on not only uh, knowledge and understanding of mental health, but ability to and willingness to seek help. Um, Paul, I'm going to bring you back in here as well. Again, you know, Shakiba mentioned that disconnect between uh, understanding mental health issues and help seeking behaviour. Um, you know, m- my own research is with coaches, and we see this a lot. Coaches are very uh, hesitant or reluctant to engage in any sort of help seeking behaviour. You know, w- w- what would you say are some of the barriers some of the things that get in the way uh, why why do we see that disconnect between understanding what mental health issues might be and actually doing something about them um well coaches are integral in sport um they're they're so important um and uh, we need we need good coaches um to not only help athletes, but to ensure success, uh, to ensure overall development of, of, of individuals. Uh, you know, of course, it always depends on what kind of level of sport we're talking about, but there's so many stressors that are placed on the, on the shoulders of these individuals. Um, uh, so I, I think that, you know, coaches, um, one, they have a lot of responsibility, um, not only for uh, player development, player well-being, making sure that um, that uh, folks perform well, that that the team is sustainable, that you know they have to uh, be accountable to various organizations. Um, there's all there's all sorts of stressors, um, but coaches are just like everyone else. There's there's a great deal of stigma that's associated with mental health and seeking help, um, and so. There is this kind of again narrative that 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 works its way through coaches that prevents them from seeking out um, help, and in addition to that, um, there may be other perhaps structural challenges as well. Being too busy, being uh, focused on the well-being of others, uh, thinking about an organization, thinking about potentially some sort of reputational um, consequences that may come from it. There may also be just a lack of confidence uh, in, in not knowing exactly what to do, how to do it, where to go, what's the pathway, what questions to ask, how to describe it. Um, and there may be, depending on the country, uh, just lack of overall access. Um, in addition to that, there's also kind of this more of an acknowledgement that coaches are employed. So coaches, I think, are viewed more as employees rather than say athletes are are not particularly particularly viewed as employees. And so I think coaches are also concerned about their jobs and their and their ability to have an income. Uh, and so a lot of people just don't disclose mental health symptoms and disorders, don't do anything about them for fear of some sort of repercussions occupationally. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know what what kind of reputational potential damage might come to the team as a result of this kind of disclosure. 
this kind of fear of will they still be seen as someone who's important in the overall development of a particular team or squad. I think it's, again, I feel like I'm making life difficult for you with this podcast. (laughs) 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 But, you know, there's just no straight answers, uh, straightforward answers. And I, I think that, you know, coaches are in a difficult situation. They're in a bind. But one thing that, that I've continuously written about with the help of many, many folks in a number of different position papers, and we wrote a, a paper on uh, developing cultural competence within uh, within sport around mental health, being open to diversity. Um, but it, there's discussions within each of these papers of collective awareness. We have to think about the mental health of athletes, of coaches, of officials, of fans, of folks who are involved in various staff positions, families. You know, it's just not sufficient enough to think about the mental health of athletes. We have to think about each other, help each other, um, and create the kinds of environments that allow individuals to to thrive, uh, to flourish, uh, to have the opportunities to pursue um whatever they want to pursue in sport and what, whatever they want to get out of it. You're listening to 80% Mental, the 65th best sports podcast in Egypt. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that is I, awesome. I love metrics. <laughs> I, I, I strongly suspect that these are just uh, made-up numbers that someone's using to get me to sign up to some sort of stats tracking service. That Worth I don't it. Want, I don't well, you know, it, it might be true. I don't know. I, I've no idea. Um, I'll take it as a, as, a, as a win. I'm here with Shakiba Mokadam and Paul Gochinski, and we've been discussing mental health in sport. If you are enjoying what you're listening to, don't forget to subscribe on the website, 80percentmental.com. You, 80percentmental.com, uh, or you can tweet us at EPM Podcast. We're also on Instagram at 80percentmental, all, all words. Um, okay, every other Instagram post that we see is about enhancing well being. And I think one thing that we do quite often, and I probably should have started the podcast with this to be honest, but one thing that we often do is we conflate mental health and mental well-being. Um, Paul, I'm going to come to you first. How, how might you explain the differences between those two concepts? There's a, there's a lot of different ways to think about this, um, which, you know, if you've been listening all along, <laughs> no surprise. Um, but perhaps maybe an easy way to start is to kind of think about mental health. Um, the World Health Organization is, is one definition to kind of perhaps get our heads around this phenomenon. And so here we're talking about uh, individuals having some sort of well-being uh, that allows them to realize their own potential. Uh, They can cope with all sorts of stresses in their lives. Uh, They have the ability to pursue some sort of work uh, and do it in a good capacity, be fruitful at it, be productive, um, and also stay connected to others. So they are able to contribute to uh, some sort of collective goal, some sort of community. Now, when we start to think about mental health, it's 
important to recognize it as a resource. It's something that allows us to do things. It allows us to realize our potential. It allows us to cope with stress. It allows us to work better, uh, or period. Uh, and it allows us to be a part of something, to be a part of a, a broader community. And now, within that, it's also important to think about what do we actually mean by well-being. Now, there's been several def definitions that have been given, and perhaps one that is quite popular is kind of looking at it from this perspective of resources and various challenges, from uh, this kind of balance point between one's physical, psychological, and social resources contrasted with various physical, psychological, and social challenges. And so it's constantly tipping from one to the other. Do we have enough resources to kind of address the kinds of challenges that we're seeing, or are we being perhaps overwhelmed by too many challenges in our lives? And, and, and one state is not better than the other. What's perhaps most optimal is this kind of balance. And it's being able to go back and forth and back and forth through life. And the reason for it is if you find yourself in this kind of state of, of excess resources, you might get bored, you might get um, too adventurous, you might get to a point where you're taking unnecessary risk factors somehow to kind of create a stimulation in your life. But the opposite is also quite damaging and quite dangerous. Uh, if there's too many constant challenges, if you don't have sufficient resources to overcome the challenges in your life, well, you just give up. You lose confidence. You lose self-esteem. And so that's why this kind of balance is ever so important when we're thinking about this concept of well-being. Now, it's also important to think about well-being from a variety of different perspectives. So what are we specifically referring to when we think about well-being? And well-being is seen on a variety of different dimensions. There's social dimensions, there's emotional dimensions, there's spiritual dimensions, environmental, occupational, intellectual. The list goes on. And in fact, there's some... Oh, I think I stumbled across a, an interesting systematic review not too long ago that evaluated something like close to a hundred different uh, measures that have been used to evaluate well-being across so many different dimensions. I think what this raises is this important point of what is it that we're actually talking about? Are we talking about mental health? Are we talking about well-being? If so, which specific element of it? Or are we perhaps contrasting it with a very specific mental symptom or a very specific disorder? Uh, and then in which case we would have to kind of understand the various consequences uh, with reference to, say, someone's cognition or their emotions or their particular behaviors and how that has maybe strained either relationships or some sort of occupational functioning or their ability to perform in sport. So are we talking about mental health or specifically well-being or are we referring to a particular set of mental symptoms? And I think that's often what's conflated is these definitions, this discussion, people often talk about just throwing up this term of mental health into the air or well-being into the air with this presumption that everyone kind of understands what it is that we're talking about and we have a common and agreed upon vocabulary. And I don't think we do. Um, I'll give you an example. 
We did a study not too long ago, we being uh, Cass Gibson and uh, Melissa Coyle out in Marjan on uh, working with Olympic divers. And we, we asked them, what do they know about mental health? How do they frame it? How they can, what kind of concepts do they kind of imagine? Who would they go to for support? And the kinds of things we heard, uh, we found surprising because overall knowledge was poor. People didn't really understand the nuances of what they were describing. Perhaps they could describe certain symptoms of various mental health disorders. But overall, there was just this lack of knowledge. And there just wasn't a common vocabulary from person to person to person to person. And this is something that has been replicated not only in sport, but outside of it. And this is something that can cause a lot of challenges for people. Because if people have all these different definitions of mental health, on one hand, great. You can describe your mental health however you feel like it. But that sets up a lot of different expectations as to what should be done about it. And expectations as to who should do that and how that might come about. So I think it's important if in any conversation um, around mental health, what is it that we're actually talking about? And so having that kind of shared language, and that language should evolve with time, but certainly uh, in any conversation that takes place, in any paper that's written, go back and define what it is that we're specifically talking about, because I think it really will help shape a conversation and also help shape a narrative and also help shape what we can do about it. That's a really interesting answer, Paul. Um, and thank you for taking the time to explain that um, so well, so clearly. I, th- I think part of the part of the issue as well is that, that well-being, I think as a concept, just gets a, a really bad rap. And I think we talked a little bit about social media earlier on. And I think well-being has kind of become the domain of the Instagram expert, you know, I'm thinking of people like Gwyneth Paltrow uh, selling her fanny candles. Um, I'm thinking. Is that of, true, by the way? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I just, apparently, I don't know if I'm going to get into trouble for saying fanny candles. But I just <laughs> go, go go and look it up. Google it. Um, I'm going to Google it. <laughs> but you know, it, it, the, the whole concept of well-being has just become the domain of the Instagram expert. Like I said, you know. So um, what what do we do about that? I know you sort of talked about having a shared concept of what well-being is and making sure we're defining um, what it is precisely that we're talking about. You know, Shakiba, if I can bring you back in again, you know, do you have any thoughts on this? How do we avoid the problems of the Instagram expert? You know, your, your PhD is on mental health literacy. Like, how do you educate athletes about, about you know, well-being and mental health and what those two things are or might be? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this, uh, but I'll try and keep this brief for the sake of time. But I mean, yeah, I've, I, this is something I do feel really strongly about, especially given my PhD on this. And I don't, like, I don't even walk around, you know, I don't call myself an expert or anything because I'm still learning. Even when this PhD is finished, there's still a lot to learn. And of course, I'll have a certain qualification that to some will make me an expert. And I think, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll be an expert in, in, in some sort of sense. But by no means does that make me an expert on mental health, on everything. And I think what social media does is that it creates a false illusion of people are experts when in reality and in real life, that is just not the case. Um, and I think one thing with social media is that as well, is I think people get 
training, actual training, psychological training via educational routes, muddled up with lived experiences. And for some, they assume that lived experiences qualifies them to then go out and give out advice to individuals. And to me, that's really dangerous. I see that as a huge danger. One thing we have to bear in mind is that this one-size-fits-all approach is, is, in my opinion, it's not feasible and it's not correct. Well-being and mental health, is, it, it is a complex, they are both complex topics and they do differ significantly. I think just for my, my own kind of journey of learning about especially ontology and epistemology and I think this year I've really got to grips or at least I like to think I've got to grips with it um, I've really come to learn how other people's perspectives and how their realities around these concepts are formed especially for interviewing the the players as well and you know one of the questions we did ask the opening question actually was how do you define mental health and the different arrays of answers you know I swear I feel like I learned a lot how people view mental health and how different mental health is viewed by people. And so that's, again, that's taking that into account is when people see this kind of oh, ill-informed advice being dished out on social media and that, what effect it can have on them and how it could become detrimental and and how our well-being differs for every single person. And, you know, based on so many, so many different factors, such as, you know, our culture, our upbringing, our belief system, the society we've grown up in, our sexual orientation, so many different things that can, can affect that. And I mean, for me, the list is is completely endless. And the problem with social media is that anyone, literally anyone with access to a phone who may have zero knowledge of mental health, you know, they can use that platform to give out an informed advice. And that's where some people will use, will use other people's insecurities and vulnerabilities, our mental health, poor mental health being one of those, to line their own pockets and I think they start to sell this by giving out false advice you know for example meditate for half an hour when you wake up or take a cold shower or have avocado on toast or green matcha tea or I don't know so, you know this great stuff that you, you hear that might work for them and now if you put that into for example in a scenario where someone is experiencing symptoms of depression for example and they go on social media and they read that they might not even have the energy to get out of bed, let alone to go and have a cold shower or have make themselves a smoothie or something. And then if they did, now if we imagine them trying all those solutions and they actually feel the same, if not worse, now they're actually left feeling much worse than what they originally started out with. And they actually, it might have the reverse effect on them where people end up feeling really horrible about themselves. They lose confidence, they lose hope, and their symptoms actually end up getting worse. And that's the danger of unsolicited advice through social media. I think we can better the experiences of athletes within their sport by literally just giving them some more information about mental health. You know, this is how symptoms look like. Um, if you're unsure of it, here's some resources you can go to. But also removing this expectation that athletes will go and seek help. You know, because now we've told them, now we're expecting them to go and help. Actually, no, they might still need a helping hand because when we experience symptoms of poor mental health we might not go and seek help and we might not even have the motivation to go and seek help we might not even have the motivation to turn up to training yeah. so it's just reassuring them that you know there is support available to them and these are the different paths and just moving away from this like out from these outdated methods of providing information through leaflets and 
again, just assuming that everyone has a literacy to read and understand information in English as well. Mm. It's actually practically showing people, I think, and providing information in what different means, um, whether that's through written or visuals or practical. And yeah, I think a lot can be achieved through, you know, intervening at the right time in the right place with the right people in mind. Yeah, I think that the, the interesting thing, um, one, of, one of the interesting things you mentioned there was the idea of this social media advice. And you, you talked about it in a very individualistic way. These are some mm-hmm. things that you can do in order to be well and enhance your well-being. You know, like you said, meditate for 30 minutes, go for a run, all, all of that sort of stuff. And, and it comes back to the point that Paul made earlier that what we're doing there is we're kind of placing the blame for poor mental well-being or poor mental health on the individual rather than taking into account some of those organizational structural factors that really might play a role here. Um, The other thing that you mentioned was um, about lived experience, lived experience not sort of replacing uh, like expertise or being, being conflated with expertise. And what's really interesting, it kind of brings me to one of my next questions, which was, that it, it's really he- it's really common to hear about athletes' struggles um, and, and coaches to a lesser extent, but it's really common to hear about their struggles after they finish their careers. This is what I said I was going to come back to a little bit earlier on, um, or, or perhaps when they reach crisis point. Um, again, I think that's starting to change a little bit for the better. But you know, we we applaud athletes for playing through depression and playing through anxiety. We love the story. And we love to talk about the bravery for continuing to push through and how difficult it must have been for them. And, you know, we celebrate that, that story around it. Um, but I guess just, just reasonably quickly, because I, I know we're sort of running out of time a little bit here, but there are lots of instances of athletes experiencing mental health issues after their careers. What are some of the dangers that, that you might see? What are things to look out for? Uh, and maybe uh, advice for transitions out of sport or, or transitions within sport. Um, I know that's kind of three questions in one. That's terrible interviewing. Um, <laughs> what, what, what do we think? What dangers of, of kind of transitioning out of sport in terms of mental health and mental well-being? And, and what, what, what do we look out for? I think it's it's really important to to. I mean, there's many things that determine one's mental health, um, and also. Uh, whether they experience various mental health symptoms and disorders. Um, I, it, it, through my writing and through my work, I, um, I take on a very uh, holistic uh, perspective um, to, to understanding athletes. Um, this kind of holistic uh, lifespan perspective um, where athletes are viewed in a variety of different ways, very multidimensionally. And so what's recognized in their lives is um, both athletic and non-athletic achievements and pursuits um, so that there is, in a sense, a a balance of of multiple aspects of one self-concept, of of how people view themselves, how people understand themselves. Um, And it's important to do that because one of the a particular risk factor for especially, say, depressive symptoms is uh, individuals who have this incredible athletic identity and they and they invest in it wholly and fully 
at the consequence of other elements of their identity in other elements of their lives. Being mindful of how we think of ourselves, how we construct our realities is really important, especially as individuals will transition to retirement, whether it be forced or intentional. Uh, and of course, intentional retirement is perhaps something that is, is most desired, but there's many different ways of individuals ending their careers in sport. Injury, uh, deselection, um, aspects around ageism, ability, that sort of thing. And so I think it's really important to be mindful of, of how individuals view themselves, construct themselves, view their sport, view other elements of their lives, and stay connected to others. That is perhaps one of the most important things. Um, there's, there's one thing that I wanted to, to share, because I, 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 I always thought this was really neat, and, and I actually learned about the NFL uh, Player Association meetups. Uh, so these are for retired players in the United States who have competed within the NFL. And these are retired uh, chapters. So these are uh, just all sorts of associations around the country where folks who have played in the NFL go uh, uh, go to. Uh, and these are opportunities to connect with the former players, learn, uh, do social activities, things like that. It allows them to stay connected in their sport in a completely different way. Post-sport, I suppose. Having meaningful connections in our lives is perhaps one of the most important things we can do when we transition into retirement. And thinking of how we construct our self-concept is important. How we stay connected to others is so important. Um, so really being mindful as, as to how we kind of approach the, the ends of our careers. And also having that kind of ability to recognize that this is going to be a very difficult process. Any transition is one that is full of anxiety. Uh, it's full of uh, individuals being really challenged. Um, and so having support through that transition is ever so important. A number of years ago, uh, Andy Murray uh, sustained uh, a first round exit from the Australian Open. I think this was 2019. And there was all this chit chat about him potentially retiring on, on the aspects of injury. And he didn't. Of course, he got surgery, got better, and went on to uh, still compete. He admitted quite publicly to the media about um, about recognizing the difficulty of coming to terms with one's end of career. And how do I do that? How do I actually progress into this new chapter of my life? And being quite open about the fact that I will require support, different kinds of support. And so Andy Murray talked a lot about the kind of psychological support that he received during that time. And that kind of disclosure was really powerful. So transitions are, are incredibly uh, anxious. Uh, we're very anxious in those kinds of transitions. Uh, we need support. And, and once uh, athletes do make it into retirement, it's important to stay connected, but it's also important to kind of consider how we construct ourselves and what we do about that. And making sure, perhaps, that we have a full life, one that is recognizing multiple dimensions of ourself is probably one of the best things we can do. I mean, that, 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 that leads me right on to the, the, the last couple of questions that I've got for you, really. And these are about the, the practical steps because we have a lot of uh, stage two trainees, uh, trainee psychologists listening to the, uh, to the podcast and MSc students. Um, so to them, 
when it comes to learning more about mental health and mental well-being, how can how can we become more effective practitioners, more effective researchers? Um, Shakiba, I'll let you jump in here first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my number one thing would be to read. Um, and this is what I got told literally first year of my PhD with, with, um, by Paul was to read and <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's been really helpful. The books. And, yeah. Yeah. Literally the books. And I, you know, down the line now, four years down the line, I, I really understand the benefit of, of why he was kind of telling me that from the get go. And I'm glad he did because it's made all the difference. I think by just reading and not just, you know, academic journals or scholars, scholars, you know, or the academic stuff, but actually just to read about people's experiences um, within academia, academic research, but outside of academic research, um, with especially with athletes, of course, you'll be working in the sport, sporting domain, read about athletes and how kind of their experiences, try and understand their experiences from your own personal perspective, but then also as a, as a sports psychologist and trying to understand how do those two differ if they do differ. Um, that That's why I found to be really useful going through my PhD was just genuinely reading and reading different sources. Um, and I think just keeping up to date with what's going on, not just around, you know, where I live in this country, but just generally what's going on around the world. How is sport perceived in different societies? Um, how is sport used in different societies to empower people empower different communities um and yeah i i think that for me of course my phd has been around mental health and of course mental health literacy and i've just i've i haven't stuck to just rugby i've, I've really tried to push the boundaries again something that paul's always like i feel like it's embedded in me now it's kind of ingrained of just pushing those boundaries and shake the trees and try and really you know if, if you're genuinely interested and curious about something try and get to the bottom of it and free reading and of course researching I've, I've learned so much about what it actually means to be an effective researcher hence you know why I even pushed the boundaries and when I got a job in something that is not even related to my to my PhD but again it was going back to that concept of really trying to learn about what's 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 out there what's going on and yeah I think t- Paul touched up on cultural competence earlier but just have an understanding about how sport psychology is perceived because sport psychology doesn't exist in, in some parts of the world and to me that's fascinating and interesting um, so it's trying to understand how different societies again view mental health and mental well-being help seeking and their intentions around it so yeah that, that would be my kind of go-to and also just to ask questions and just to never stop being curious just ask um and just get involved, get involved in what you can, you know, mm-hmm. and don't just put limits on yourself in terms of, oh no, I should be doing this because this is just my research area. If you're genuinely interested in something, get involved in it. Yeah. And and th- th- thank you for that. And Paul, what about you? Maybe from a practitioner perspective, you know, how can we become mm. more effective practitioners when it comes to learning more about mental health, about mental well-being? Well, I think there's there's a there's a number of things that. Um, Folks, a number of things that folks can do. Because you, you said specifically, uh, you, you have a lot of listeners who are uh, kind of going through the process of maybe one day reaching kind of registration, mm-hmm. uh, like stage two um, accreditation, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think it's ever so important. 
to engage in reflective practice. Uh, so you know, what's going on? Um, uh, what has happened? Uh, you know, what, what are you going to do differently in the future? How are you kind of going to uh, think about your practice, evolve your practice? And I think within that, there needs to be a very specific focus on your competencies because one of the most important things that, and this builds on your question around like Instagram wellness and, and all those kinds of folks, you know, selling candles and things like that, is, is what is within your scope of practice? You know, what are you actually able to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what can you do meaningfully and legally uh, within that kind of scope of practice? So, for instance, nowhere within our scope of practice are we allowed to diagnose or to treat any form of mental symptom or disorder? Um, and so what can we actually meaningfully do around this? So there's plenty to do in terms of education, plenty in terms of being able to work with individuals as well as organizations, plenty to do in terms of doing SWOT analyses of what organizations meaningfully actually want to do. Are they serious about challenging their current perspectives around mental health, as well as mental symptoms and disorders, as well as creating pathways for assistance. What can we do with individuals? How can we help create better pathways to seeking support, building confidence to go and ask right questions, reaching out? In a sense, how do we work within our scope of practice to ensure that we don't cross boundaries and also refer where necessary? And I think that's ever so important because the last thing we need to do is enter some sort of wild west area of, of mental health within sports psychology that is outside of our scope of practice. Now, in the United States, things are a bit different. There are clinical psychologists who are also sport and exercise psychologists, and that's different than what we have in the UK. We don't have that unless you have both accreditations. So it's important to kind of be reflective. It's important to recognize our competencies. It's important to be understanding. I mean, and I mean that, like, get the list out. What can and can you not do? And uh, and work within your scope of practice. And I think it's ever so important within that kind of critical reflection and awareness of what you can and cannot do. Open your mind to just kind of understanding that this is a, a, a worldwide phenomenon. And most of what has been done has been done in English-speaking parts of the world in in western parts of the world and there are so many different definitions of mental health of symptoms of disorders of ways of going about things and and uh, i remember working on a on a paper with a number of the folks from the ioc this is a the developing cultural competence within within mental health within sport and leslie swartz who's at the university of stolenbosch out in south africa raised this point so well that there's never a point where we're Competent about something, whether it be culture or whether it be mental health, this requires continual evolution and continual willingness to learn. Do you have that in your practice? Do you actually have a genuine thirst for contemporary approaches to understanding mental health? And what is your place within being of assistance, whether to individuals or organizations? So, how are you? willing to learn? How are you willing to better yourself? Where are you willing to also identify various forms of deficits? What do you don't know? And can you confidently point that out and also confidently look for ways to strengthen that?
Because the worst thing you need you can do for yourself is to be overconfident about something you have no idea about. And um, and I think this is a beautiful journey about really developing your skill sets, understanding various competencies, and being someone who is really supportive of individuals as they pursue various elements of what makes them flourish. Uh, you know, the conversation today has been about sport, but you can apply this kind of these aspects of performance psychology. This almost, almost anything that people do in their lives. Um, so it's, there's so much that can be done, and I really just encourage to uh, students to kind of, or individuals who, hell, anybody, <laughs> <laughs> have the willingness to learn. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's the most important thing that, that can actually be done. Well, I think we are coming towards the end of the time that we have for this this podcast episode. So thank you once again to my guests today. Thank you, Shakiba Mokadam. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for saying. I don't know if I should say something if you want to continue talking. Yeah, I should have I should have, I should have, I should have prepped Sorry, you. I just ruined that. That's all right. Yeah, no. Well, let's do it again. Uh, okay. <laughs> thank you, Shakiba Mokadam. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Um speaking with you and also having Paul on the podcast with me. So yeah, thank you for this. It's been great. No, you're more than, more than welcome. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to Dr. Paul Gorczynski. Thank you so much for having me. So yeah, thank you both for what has been an absolutely brilliant conversation. And it is a conversation that I wish we'd had several more hours to, to get into. There's loads of things that I would have liked to, to have asked. Um, but unfortunately, we only have so much time in the day. Uh, we've talked about differences between mental health and mental well-being and why it's important to not only make that distinction but to really define the concepts that we're talking about we've talked about career transitions we've talked about coach well-being and mental health and sports coaching and why they are really really important conversations to have alongside athlete mental health uh, we've talked about the role that psychology has to play in continuing to open up these conversations uh, and how psychologists working in sports settings can make a difference at individual levels, but also at organizational, institutional levels, which is so, so important. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard today. And as always, feel free to get in touch, leave a comment on the website, 80percentmental.com, uh, where you can check out all of the other great 80% Mental episodes, uh, or you can tweet us at epmpodcast or get in touch on Instagram at 80% mental. Uh, I imagine most people will probably have turned off by this point. The music's come on, you know, like when you get your bags and coats, when you sense that the lecture's finishing. Um, but if you are still listening and if you've enjoyed the episode, please do share on your own social media and you can really help out by leaving a lovely review on Apple Podcasts. Let's see if we can get to number 64 in the sports podcasts in Egypt, uh, Apple charts. Thank you for listening and I will see you next time. Well, I'll see you. It's a podcast.